Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in the West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestinus.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. My name is Robbie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to be with you today. And as we spend time in God's word and we spend quality time with him, I hope that we are all strengthened and encouraged in our faith as we observe what he has to say today. If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 5, that's on page 872 of the Bibles on the seat back in front of you. As a faith family, we've been going through the book of Acts for several weeks now. And not just on Sunday mornings, but we've also been going through it in our first ever sermon-based small group studies um, throughout the week. And as a high-level reminder about what the book of Acts is about, the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit of God on the move, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ through people. The The book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit of God on the move, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ through people. These last couple weeks, we've been working, uh, looking at some practical real-life struggles that some of these people God was working through were facing. And today's passage, we are observing another example. We're looking at Paul, and he is in the city of Corinth. As you can see from the picture behind me, um, Corinth is not far away from Athens. It's about 50 miles total away from Athens. Uh, it's a similar distance that Indianapolis has to Lafayette, right? So just as there is a connectivity between those two cities, so too is Corinth and Athens have a similar connectivity, a melding of culture and religions and education and socioeconomic demographic. So there's a lot of similarities between what we saw last week when we were in Athens and this week now in Corinth. And what do we find Paul doing here in this city? He is with his friends, Aquila and Priscilla, and they are making tents for a living, part-time work as they do ministry together. And verse four of chapter 18 says, he, Paul, was reasoning or engaging, as we learned last week, in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. See, Paul was wanting to engage people with purpose and intentionality, and he was doing that. But then there is this interesting turn of events for Paul. Fear comes over Paul. This week, we want to answer the question, how are we to be a people, you and I, how are we to be a people fearing less in light of the Great Commission? And I think Acts 18, 5 through 17 answers it in this way. We must be a people who testify about Jesus to those who will listen, knowing the Lord is with us regardless of the consequences. And before you start writing all those down, they're already in there, so don't panic, okay? We're not, we're we're gonna work through it slowly and we're gonna read through the whole uh, passage, verses five to 17, and then we're gonna focus in on each of these elements, all right? So is everybody there in Acts 18.5? Awesome. 
Well, let's begin, and let's hear what God has to say. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray. Father, as we jump into your word, I pray that you bring us in humble submission of what you have to say. Lord, we delight in the fact that you are perfect, good, and right, and we thank you for loving us and being with us, and Father, we need you in this moment. We need you every hour, and Lord, uh, we need your conviction and your comfort. Thank you for working all things together for your glory and our good. Amen. We all have fears and can understand fears, right? Uh, whether that's the easy fears like, uh, you know, fear of heights or fear of spiders, fear of snakes and clowns and hearing styrofoam pieces rubbing together. Um, that's the fear of some people that we can kind of relate to some of us, maybe. But then there are those fears that I think all of us, uh, even some of you have mentioned in the register. Um, there are things as I was reflecting, things of what are fears that we all struggle with? And I think here are some that we can relate to together on things that we struggle with as well. For example, fear of not fitting in, fear of not finding a spouse, fear of death, fear of parenting incorrectly, fear of miscarriage, fear of losing a job or not getting a job, fear of saying no, fear that we can't make ends meet, or fear of man. I think we can recall in, either in our lives or those around us similar fears. And if I can be honest with you, um, I am fearful now as I sit up here before you. Um, 
not fearful just because of, you know, I have the, so let me tell you, I have the fear that I might pass out up in front of you. And I just told you my greatest fear, so if it happens, then please show me grace, all right? Um, but that's that, not just that type of fear that I'm wrestling with uh, as I sit here before you, but um, I also, uh, as some of you know, uh, my family has been going through a lot this last year. Um, my dad, a year ago, he had a stroke. Um, my sister-in-law is presently battling stage four breast cancer and receiving treatments for that. My mom is presently right now in the ICU. Uh, she had a brain aneurysm on Friday, and uh, she is there, and people are tending to her. And um, I'm a new parent. That's fearful. Um, uh, I have many fears that could come through my head and have. Um, and yet I believe, and I think we believe, that God is sovereign in all things, right? God is sovereign, and he chose all these events to occur on the weekend that I was preaching. <laughs> yet God knows what he is doing. And it's interesting, the topic is fear. That's not accident. That is sovereign, planned grace by God. And as I wrestled with these realities, even the, over the last two days, wondering, should I preach or not, and how should, you know, how should that work? And God has been gracious and loving towards me in this time of preparation, reminding me that we can sometimes focus on fear, or we can choose to focus on the right things. We can occupy our minds more on what we're afraid of, or we can choose to occupy our minds with the right things. And I think the same is true for our lives. We can either occupy ourselves with fear and just uh, take that fear and cram it down like a suitcase that's overpacked, or we can, uh, we can focus on other things. Because notice I said focusing on the right things. I didn't say occupying or focusing on something or anything, right? We can, in our fears at times, try to distract ourselves and, like I said, uh, push that thing that we're thinking about down or focus on other things. And I think this passage shows us how to occupy ourselves, not with fear, but what is right and good. And Paul was wrestling with that as well here. And he was wrestling with that while he was testifying about Jesus. The text shows us in verse five, and take a look. Paul, uh, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. I love this testimony. Paul was occupied with God's word, what we have, and he was testifying about Jesus. What a cool testimony. I would love for our testimony to be that. I would love for my testimony to be that. I, we are a people who are so occupied with God's word that a natural overflow is testifying about who Christ is. And these are actually the two words I want us to focus on for uh, a portion of our time together. First, testify. I want to focus on the word testify. Testify about Jesus doesn't have to be this overcomplicated evangelistic strategy or quick tricks or a one-minute sales pitch to our waiter or waitress, uh, sharing the gospel and testifying about Jesus 
can be a very simple reality. See, it's about sharing what Jesus has done. Not what the church has done for you and I, not what your friends who are Christians who have done, and not what even you or I have done for Jesus. When we are testifying, sharing our testimony, sharing a testimony of Jesus, we are sharing about what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, how Jesus is in control, the ruler, and how he is gracious and loving and kind. Now, does, does he affect those are, other areas, our Christian life, uh, our friends, and things like that? Absolutely. But the centerpiece is Christ. And the gospel means good news, and we are, when we are testifying about Jesus, we are sharing good news. So let me testify to you for a second in a way that I've, I've seen it as we have gone through scripture. God in his holiness met with humanity in our sinfulness through his son Jesus in his perfectness so that we may be redeemed in his justice and graciousness. Let me say that again. I want to write this down. God in his holiness met with humanity in our sinfulness through his son Jesus in his perfectness so that we may be redeemed in his justice and graciousness. Let's take a look at a concrete example of what somebody sharing the gospel, what that looks like. Somebody sharing the gospel and what that looks like. Uh, Jump in your Bibles to Acts 17, so you're kind of already there. Uh, Look at verse 24, and this is Paul sharing the gospel. Ready? The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Jump down to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This isn't the Romans road, because we're in the book of Acts, um, but this is the gospel. This is the gospel. God is the creator and made all things, including humanity. Yet humanity in our sinfulness does not live in ignorance, but in rebellious unbelief against God. Yet God in his graciousness sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again so that those who repent and believe in him will have the assurance that if they trust in him, they will be saved. That is what God has done in Jesus. This is the gospel message. It is simple yet profound. It is strung throughout all of scripture. It needs no smoke and mirrors because it is glorious and marvelous on its own. And what's interesting is that Paul is not only just sharing the testimony of Jesus, he is also sharing his life with those whom he is around in Corinth here. Notice it said a minute earlier that he stayed here for a year and six months he is being a 1 Thessalonians 2.8 kind of person. 
sharing the life, sharing his life and the gospel with those whom he is around. And if we want to be a First Thess 2.8 kind of church as well, uh, in sharing the gospel and our lives, we have to remember that people will not come to Jesus just by us sharing our life and hope that people get Jesus through osmosis with our life. We have to take time to share and testify about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, how he impacts your life. We have to be purposeful, intentional, and engaging with those around us and take the time to testify about Jesus. He is marvelous and he impacts our life daily. So let's be a people confident in the message of Christ as we testify about Jesus. The second thing I want us to highlight before we move on is this word occupy. And notice, Paul was occupied with God's word before he was testifying about Jesus, okay? Uh, And we need to, we've got to occupy ourselves in God's word, in the Bible. And this is what the Greek term occupy suggests as well. It suggests that we must give continuously close attention and devotion to these pages, giving ourselves to the Bible, applying ourselves to it, applying it and meditating on it and soaking it in regularly. So by way of example, let me show you um, an example of somebody occupying yourself with something. This is my new baby girl, Eden. Eden, oh yes, that was, that was the most ahs I've heard all morning, that was great. Um, we love Eden. We have so much fun with her and she's only two weeks old. Um, and um, we have just been enjoying this whole journey, working together, Julie and I, to learn this little one and care for her and love her and, and um, we love it. But there are times when through the day I'll occupy myself with Eden. I will hold Eden, I will delight in what I'm seeing, I will study every inch of what I see, meditate on her and just enjoy as I'm holding her and occupy myself with her. And after a while, I even lose track of time because I am occupying myself with her. And the same is true as we occupy ourselves in this. As we hold it, we can soak it up, delight in it, meditate on it. We can study every inch of what we are seeing We can enjoy what we are reading. And as we are in God's word, and as we are occupying ourselves in God's word, we will delight more in God's word. And this is a great privilege that we have, God's message to us. This is a great joy, and just as I get to know Eden in occupying myself and spending time with her, so too, Um, Do we get to know God as we spend quality time occupying ourselves in God's word? In fact, I have for you today a way that we can equip ourselves um, in occupying ourselves in God's word and testifying about Jesus. You can pick up one of these as you leave today, and it is a means of occupying yourself and testifying about Jesus. This is not an evangelistic strategy. This is ultimately a way of learning how to look across scripture at specific passages and trace the character of God 
the character of humanity, the character of Jesus, and a response. And also it tracks what is the cost to this. This is a way to share the gospel with somebody. This is a way to occupy yourself in God's word. I actually use this as a reference all the time. I write it down usually in the back of my Bible, but we had it created for you today so that you can be equipped in this testifying about Jesus. So grab one of these as you leave today. The ushers will have them, or we have some up here on the stage. We would love for this to be able to equip all of us as we do this. Are we testifying about Jesus regularly? Are we occupying ourselves in God's wonderful word regularly? As we occupy ourselves in the word, let's testify about Jesus to those who will listen. In verses six to eight, Paul has this encounter over and over again where he goes into a city, preaches the good news, some reject, some accept, and then usually he gets kicked out. And it's so cool where he, in this instance, he gets kicked out, and uh, so he usually goes and reasons in the synagogue, and he gets kicked out of the synagogue, and what does he do? He moves next door to this guy's house whose name is Titius Justice, okay? And so think of this similar to a parsonage of a church. He gets kicked out and then moves right next door, and what does he keep doing? He keeps sharing the gospel with those whom he's near to those who will listen. And thankfully, by God's grace, Titius Justice comes to know Jesus through his testimony. And as he's staying on the couch in Titius Justice's house and uh, going out into the streets and still testifying, uh, who else comes to know Jesus? Well, the text tells us in verse eight, Crispus also comes to know Jesus. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, the place where he just got kicked out of. And he comes to know Jesus. And not just Crispus, but his entire family. So his, his wife and his children, whatever, whoever is living under his household. And verse eight also tells us that it's not only just those couple people. It is also, uh, where's it at here? Verse eight, uh, it says, there were many Corinthians, many of the Corinthians who were hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So Gentiles start to come to know Jesus as well. And Paul is so bold and audacious in his sharing of God's word and, and God is still working through him. Now, even though Paul had opposition from some, there were still others, as we see, who were accepting this gospel truth. Now, did these people come to know Jesus because Paul is so eloquent and really good at defending the faith? We would say, sometimes we, as we look at Paul, we would be like, yeah, he's pretty good at that, right? He's pretty good at being eloquent and defending the faith. And, but he actually, we later find out, he writes his account of his time here in Corinth. He's reflecting back on what he was feeling, what he was thinking in this time of testifying about Jesus to those around him. And you don't need to flip there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses three and four, Paul, was, Paul said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul admits that he was fearful, even to the point of trembling. 
He admits that he didn't even have clear words of wisdom and that it was only by the power of the Spirit who'd made sense of his fumbling words. Even in Paul's inadequacy, God still used him to bring glory to Jesus. Anybody else feel inadequate? I do all the time. I do even now. I did this week in prepping for this today. I feel inadequate. And Paul felt the same way. Yet God is in the business of using broken people. And it is through our imperfections that the perfected Savior is made known. That is a reflection of God at work. God using broken people for his glory. And you know what? That's all he has to choose from is broken people. We're all broken. Like that's his, Those are his options. This broken person over this next broken person. And yet God is so gracious to use us for his glory that we get to participate in his life, death, and resurrection of how he has redeemed our lives. And as we testify about Jesus, we, as broken people, get to just be an example of God at work. Are we afraid of those who won't listen as we share about Jesus? Are we afraid of our friends, coworkers, family, who as we share, they might mock us, reject us, humiliate us, make fun of us? You know what? Jesus had a similar response from people. God in the flesh had a similar response. He had the best message to deliver, and what did some people do? They rejected him, mocked him, humiliated him, persecuted him. Yet I'm so glad that Christ persevered to the cross. It is only through his victory that we can be here and profess the wonderful name of Jesus. His perseverance is not just an example, it's, it's um, an opportunity to humble ourselves and ask for the same perseverance in our own lives as we testify about Jesus. And as we testify about Jesus, some will accept, some will repent, I'm sorry, some will reject, some will repent, and some might just need more time as they hear about this news. And Paul has this similar response from people. Some rejected him, some repented immediately, and others, he needed to live next door to share with his unbelieving neighbors over time for them then to come to know Jesus. God is not calling us to be fearful, but he is calling us to be faithful. Let's faithfully share about Jesus to those who are around us. A people fearing less must testify about Jesus to those who will listen, knowing that the Lord is with us. Verse nine, take a look at verse nine. Um, This is a unique encounter that God has, I'm sorry, Paul has with God. Um, Paul is not called into the boss's office for a reprimand in this moment. He is not given a flippant compliment by God. This is a sweet, intimate moment that God and Paul have together. What's interesting is that we don't know what Paul was afraid of. We can assume that it might have been a fear of man reality because of the context, but we don't don't actually know what he was afraid of, but 
God knows exactly what he was afraid of, knows exactly what he needed to hear, and we get to read it. So let's take a look in verse nine. God says to Paul, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Uh, I wish I could go into further detail on that last sentence, but unfortunately we don't have time. What I do want us to focus in on is this phrase, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Now remember, this is a special um, time that God has with the Apostle Paul. Yet, this is not the first time we've heard about this type of promise. Right, let's reflect back over the Old Testament. We can remember a couple other guys that had this same promise delivered to them in a special encounter with God. I think of Moses. Moses was feeling pretty inadequate. He was feeling weary and tired and he was unsure if he was going to be able to do the task that God gave him. Then Joshua receives a similar promise. And then Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 1, has the exact same encounter where God comes to him He is feeling inadequate, and yet God says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And then here again, Paul. And I I love it that whenever God is doing a change for his people, he always gives a, a reassurance, a comfort to them as he is changing something for his people. You may think, okay, well, what, how does that apply to us? Are we, do we have this same promise? I would encourage you to flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. There's a similar promise to us where God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, also gives a promise to those who follow him. If you follow Jesus, this is a promise to you. Verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so Jesus just made an authoritative claim. That's kind of a big authority claim, right? He has all authority. Then he gives an authoritative command in verse 19. Verse 19 says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And then there is this authoritative promise that Jesus gives. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always. Always. Not sometimes, not when Jesus feels like it, and not when we are being quote unquote good Christians. Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. That is a glorious reminder. The second person of the Trinity is with us. If you are claimed by Christ's sacrificial blood, you are held by the Holy Spirit and God is with you. And Jesus doesn't make this promise because of who we are, and he doesn't make this promise just because of what we have done or are doing for him. He makes this promise because of who he is. 
He is perfect. He is good. He is right. He is loving. He cares for us. And he is with us. Jesus knows what you and I need. We need him. And we don't just need him at the moment of salvation. We need him always, continuously, ongoing. Do not be afraid. If Jesus is with us always, how would that change the circumstances that we are afraid of or fearful of? How can this awesome reality change the way that we share the good news of Christ knowing that he is with us to people at that coffee shop or uh, our friends at that table as we have our lunch during our lunch break? This does not make us fearless, but it should cause us to fear less. We can rest in this wonderful promise that Jesus is with us always. You can turn back in your Bible to Acts 18. In the uh, short few weeks that I've been a parent, I find great joy when, uh, I've said this a few times now, I don't find joy in in Eden crying. Um, uh, I find joy when Eden is crying and I run to her and I say, Eden, daddy's here. And I get real close to her and I say, Eden, daddy's here, and she calms down. I love it. And if I could train her to keep doing that, that would be great. Um, It doesn't always work, okay? But, um, and I know that she's probably not even registering some of it. I mean, she can only see this far away anyways. But as a dad, I find great joy knowing that when daddy comes and she hears my voice, she calms down. And just as the joy that I get from that, It made me think this week, how much more is our heavenly father glorified when his children hear his voice and we rest knowing that he is with us? He is here, he is not absent, he is not far off, he is with us now and always. God receives glory when we trust that, when we believe that, and when that belief takes effect in our life towards action that even regardless of a week that is chaotic, that we can fear less because Jesus is with us. Let's be disciple makers testifying about Jesus to those who will listen knowing the Lord is with us regardless of the consequences. I find this series of events interesting starting in verse 12 to the end. See, Paul doesn't do anything to wiggle his way out of this situation. In fact, God answers his promise immediately. God makes a promise to Paul, and then he answers that promise. Now, before I go on, I have a question. Does God always fulfill his promises immediately? No. But does God always fulfill his promises? Yes, absolutely. God always fulfills his promises. And God chooses in his sovereignty to fulfill his promise here immediately. In verse 10, take a look. Verse 10, God says to Paul, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And then in verse, uh, verses 12 through 17, God fulfills that promise by using this unbelieving pagan who, as far as we know, does not believe in Christ, and 
this guy delivers Paul from persecution. And he speaks up for Paul on his behalf before Paul even says anything. And as I was, as I was wrestling with this this week, a couple questions were coming through my head as I read it. Um, first, Paul is pretty skilled at defending the faith, right? I mean, we would all agree that he does a pretty good job usually. But yet, God chose to keep him quiet in this moment and allow somebody else to deliver him. It was a helpful reflection for me that, and a reminder, and I think there's a mutual encouragement to us that we don't always have to speak or defend God for him to still do a work in someone's life. A perfect example would be um, family members. Sometimes it's hard to share the gospel with family members who do not believe in Jesus. And sometimes we don't have to defend in order for God to still do a work in somebody's life. Or coworkers whom you have a relationship with or friends whom you've been trying over and over again, testifying. God doesn't always work through our words. Sometimes there are other ways that God is at work. The second thing I was wondering too, what was going through Paul's mind when this crowd is dragging him before the proconsul? Now I say dragging because I don't think they were like, come on Paul, we got somewhere to take you. I think they were very mad and reviled and they bring Paul in their anger before the proconsul. Um, and it's interesting, we even see that these guys are so mad that when the proconsul says, nope, you can't beat up Paul, they go pick some other guy and go beat him up, all right? It's crazy, like these guys are so angry, they just, they wanna beat somebody up. And uh, yet God uh, chooses to work and protect Paul in this moment. And I wonder why, as, I was going, as we were going through this, um, what was Paul thinking when he was getting dragged before them? Do you think he was fearful in that moment? Do you think he was fearless? Or was he just fearing less in this moment? I think the same is true as I reflect on Stephen, who was persecuted and killed by people throwing stones at him. Was Stephen fearful in that moment? And why did God choose to protect Paul here but not Stephen earlier? Or why did, Paul, why did God choose to protect Paul in Acts 18, but in Acts 14, Paul also gets pelted by stones, almost to the point of death? Why was God doing this? Why? We aren't called to discern every consequence that is happening in our life or others around us. We are called to remain faithful. And God was still at work through Paul and others around him. I find this portion of scripture interesting, these verses five through 17, because it's this short little story and it just kind of ends. If you take a look at verse 18, verse 18 says, and after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave. That was it. A year and six months is recorded here in just a short few verses. I wonder why God chose to do that. God could have chose to focus on many other things in these, this short little passage. He could have talked about how the church is growing in Corinth. He could have talked about a defense that Paul gave and it was so skillful. He could have talked about how he was building a relationship with uh, Titius Justice, his neighbor, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, but God's word chose to focus on something here. And I think it, we, as we reflect, we can see that God was focusing here on Paul's inadequacy and God's comfort. 
And it was happening while he was testifying about the glorious work of Christ. And yet Paul, who is very experienced, was fearful. And in verse 9 to 10, I think that's the centerpiece that we can walk away from, remembering that God is with us always. This truth and reminder is something I think we can hold on to in every part of our life. That no matter when things get difficult, because they will get difficult if they haven't already, God is with us. Christ is with us. So what is something you are fearful of? How do you feel inadequate or weary like Paul here in this passage? Are you comfortable sharing that with your small group? Are you comfortable being honest with yourself or before the Lord, asking him, Lord, why Why am I afraid to share about you in my life? I would encourage you to take some time to do that today or with your small group through the week. God in his sovereignty has allowed us to share the good news of Jesus with those whom we share our lives. And that can be a fearful reality. Right? You guys agree? But Jesus is with us. And this should lead us to fear less. And why does this cause us to fear less? Because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is glorious. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He reigns over all. He is the sustainer, the creator of life, and the author of life. He is the Emmanuel, God with us, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he is our Savior. This is who Jesus is, and when we are testifying about Jesus, this is who we are talking about because of who he is, what he has done, and he is with us always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us. It is such a comfort knowing that you work through our inadequacies. Thank you for what you have done in Christ. Thank you that you are at work in us, broken people. Lord, we praise you because of the wonderful, powerful name of your son, Jesus. And we do not take this for granted, that we have an incredible opportunity of holding your divine word and sharing about your divine son with those whom we encounter life with. And Lord, we ask that you be glorified through your work in our lives, that even through our inadequacies, even through our brokenness, even through our inabilities and times where we are not clear or we mess up or we, we say the wrong things, that ultimately, Lord, that we trust you, that we know that you can still work all things for your glory and our good, that we not focus on ourselves, but that we focus on you, that we occupy our minds on the right things, that we fear less because you're with us always. Thank you. Your name.